Hi there. Welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on Mushroom Hour, we have the pleasure of speaking with Anthony Basil Rodriguez. Anthony is a New York-born independent photographer and filmmaker. Since childhood, he has been oriented toward a range of visual worlds. As a teenager, Anthony began to carry around an old film camera that his younger brother had lying around from a school project. Now, eventually taking his hobby more seriously, Anthony got a job pushing carts in order to buy that first digital camera. It was one day after a thunderstorm that he was discovered by a local news station knee-deep in floodwaters collecting photos of the aftermath. He spent the following three years submerged in live television, editing daily newscasts, and during this time, he honed and developed a true eye and skill for editing, videography, and ultimately, storytelling. Since leaving the news industry, Anthony has continued to push his craft, interlacing realms of photography, video, and film. This work continues to bring Anthony around the world in pursuit of research and documentation of rare plants, disparate peoples, and the flux of global society. One of his current projects, Growing Back to Nature, recently caught my attention as it features foragers, citizen mycologists, and seekers who are trying to carve out a future path based around a more holistic connection with our planet and what it is to live more in tune with natural systems. Anthony, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure, man. Thank you. It's an honor to be able to interview you. Obviously, now I'm a big fan of your work, your documentary work. But before we get into, you know, the whole Growing Back to Nature series and you know, what you're working on now, I do want to flesh out a little bit of that story of how you got into video and photography and like it said in the intro, ultimately how you developed as a storyteller. Well, um, the photography part happened because uh, I found an old camera in my house. Actually, my brother had a school project uh, in high school, and I guess he had got his hands on an old uh, Minolta XD11, just like a, just like a regular old film camera. and it was laying around and I started just carrying it around. Film was expensive. I had got some free film from a friend and I started photographing with this camera, loaded the film up, just looked up how to do that, load the film up and started taking pictures. And when I got the de- film developed, like at a CBS or wherever I took it, all the, the shots were basically overexposed. Like it was, it was horrible. So then I just started to learn basically the fundamentals of film and started to take pictures. It was kind of, kind of a hobby. And the whole step into like the digital world started when I wanted to begin making blogs about like me gardening and just doing the things I'm doing at my home. Yeah. And then I started working, pushing carts. And this is probably when I was like 20 or 19 years old or something like that, pushing carts. And I did that and I saved up and got a little camera and just started making like little photos and videos with digital, like stepping into the digital world. And uh, one day there was this huge like thunderstorm um, and my brother, Andrew, was basically a uh, landscaper and he had this old white van and he told me, hey, there's this mail truck stuck in this water. you got to come see it. And I, he pulled up to my house and I hopped in the car and I went there with my camera and this guy was just sitting in the back of his truck, a mailman sitting in the back of his truck, like flooded out. And I basically took my shoes off and rolled my pants up and walked into the water and a news truck pulled up and they assumed that we was with another station. You're in a white van. You're like a news (laughs) van. 
<laughs> exactly. So they're like, basically, my brother was talking to the guy by his car, and apparently he was the newsroom uh, manager. His name is Frank Bruce. He wanted to talk to me. He spoke to me for a bit. He was like, hey, you sound really smart for your age, and you should come down to the station. And I, I guess at the time, I didn't really realize who I was talking to. So basically, I took his email down. I, I looked him up. I was like, oh, wow, this is actually pretty crazy. Like, And I called him, and he invited me down to the station. I went down to the station, and he brought me into a newsroom. This is me like a few months prior pushing carts to like save up money to buy a camera. And here I am in a, like a newsroom, like a very high professional local newsroom with cameramen and anchors. And, and he took me into the editing booth and he said, do you think you could do this? And I just said, yeah, I said, yeah, you know, and basically they trained me for three weeks and I started to just learn how to edit videos. And a couple of months later I was editing live newscast and that atmosphere really built like my world and in terms of because there was a lot of other young workers there like uh, photographers and and filmers the cameramen that were just around my age and they were like really interested in film and I was interested in film and watching movies and it just was like an atmosphere that just it just like molded this like creative drive I had into doing this I guess I mean it's like a master's degree basically in the field and I think a lot of us want to know your secret to manifestation to go into like getting interested in video and film. And then a couple months later, boom, you're in a newsroom, cutting a video on a newsroom floor. That's a really incredible story. And I think it really communicates so powerfully how important it is sometimes to just pursue a passion, show up and just see where it leads. You never know who you're going to run into. You never know who you're going to meet in the course of doing it. Now, what was that like working in a newsroom? My first instinct is that you might really get like disillusioned with the world. You might see some behind the scenes secrets of how the world really operates. What was that like working at a news station? Well, this news station was in Connecticut and Southwestern Connecticut. It was a News 12. It was really interesting. Uh, The dynamic of the personalities that I was dealing with Mm. was really interesting. A lot of smart people and a lot of weird people in a good way. And, uh, what I was doing, uh, I felt like the job I was doing was basically a seven man job. And it was all in one uh, being a, an editor. Um, I would have like this booth will be called an edit bay. And in that edit bay, we're basically connected to the server. And right at that, there's another room that's basically a satellite room, they call it. And it has all the equipment. And I was dealing with writers and Basically, they would just hand me a script and the cameraman would come back. They'll drive back to the station after they just shot a story. The writer would watch the story, write the script. They would hand that to me and I would basically edit that to the script, learning how like fast a, a anchor reads, you know, and all these, because this is basically the prompter uh, script, basically what I'm, I'm editing right. to. We call them VO, they're voiceovers. They, they're called VOs. Um, and a SOT is a sound on tape. And I'll just basically edit that and pop it in. And sometimes we'll be close to hours, say like uh, we're going live at six and some of the, the cameramen are caught in traffic. We have to bump up stories. You know, I'm talking with the producer downstairs and we're bumping up stories and, you know, trying to buy me time to basically edit something that's going to air in three minutes. And I'll have like maybe two oh, or three my. minutes to edit the next piece. And it was really hectic and yeah. high pressure and a lot of responsibility. I kind of just stepped into this world that people have spent four to six years of their lives going to school and doing all these things to basically learn this profession. And I was given an opportunity to just kind of get a chance at that. You know, I was thrown into the water. 
Yeah. The newsroom manager always said he looks for people. When he saw me, he said, he said he looks for people similar to the guy at Starbucks who's making 15 coffees, but he's doing it in such a way that's like his mind is able to take on all these tasks. You know, he's saying that's the kind of personality trait he was looking for. And I guess he saw that in me in some way. Of course, he wants the guy that can do seven people's jobs and just pay him for one person's job. So he says, Anthony, <laughs> you're perfect. But it's cool because it sounds like you had a lot of creative control and it did let you, I mean, you were being the visual storyteller. I'm assuming you had kind of the final call, especially if it's three minutes before airtime, you had the final call of what this whole visual for experience sure. looked like. Not so much creative control, but you know, you, ha- you have to stick to the script. But right. you are the one making the decisions of what images they're seeing. And as you scroll through all the footage that you're being given, that you're given, you're basically saying, hmm, this is a nice shot. How you edit that and how you put that together that is your decision. But they do know what they want. And I have to follow that script. <laughs> well, then how did you end up transitioning from kind of local news world into now where you're like this globetrotting video nomad who's capturing biodiversity and plant diversity to all over the world? When did that shift happen for you? Well, I, I've been loving plants since I was a child. Like botany has been like an interest of mine since I was young. When I was a kid, I actually used to collect carnivorous plants. And that was like my dive into the plant world. Like, I was seven years old. I started like ordering. It was a, a nursery in Canandaigua, New York, Peter Paul Nurseries. And I remember I was like seven or eight years old and I found out what a Venus flytrap was. And that like freaked me out. I was like, what? There's plants that eat bugs? Right. And I guess... That was like crazy to me. And I don't remember how I found out about this nursery, but I found this nursery that was in Canandaigua, New York. And I would, I found the number and I would actually call the guy, Peter Paul. I don't even know where this guy is at now, but I would <laughs> call him up. And then he would send me a catalog and he would send me like free rhizomes of like Venus flytraps. And then I would save my little money orders or like sometime. My mom worked in World Trade Center at the time and I would like visit go and visit her. And, you know, I was a little kid. So like, you know, they're like a oh, cute little kid. Everyone give me a dollar or whatever. Any money I made, I would save and like purchase new plants and I'll put them in the fish tank. I'll build like terrariums and just have like carnivorous plants and things like that. So that's how I started to like nerd out on plants and it could stuck with me basically to now. But I started traveling the world with an ethnobotanist and taking photos for him and just basically exploring the world in that sense. And really diving into the academia side of botany in terms of reading research papers and and tracking down these things in the wild and photographing them. And that was what kind of merged those two worlds. What were those explorations like? And tell us about the work you've been doing with everyone's favorite, bananas. Because this this absolutely fascinates me. So I want to hear a little bit about like the arc of this work and, and what it's been like researching that. Well, bananas is probably one of the most interesting fruits to me and to the world, in my opinion. Uh, I started looking into bananas probably around five years ago, and I just started reading random literature and read a few books. There's a really good book called uh, The Fate of the Fruit That Changed the World by Dan Coppell. And I read that book, and that was actually really was like, whoa, it's crazy. I started to learn about uh, banana diversity being into plants, you know, we just know about the Cavendish, you know, the yellow banana that we see in the store, but there are dozens and dozens and dozens of wild species of bananas that reach from Northeast India all the way to the South Pacific, New Guinea and 
Solomon Islands. And I basically, 2019 was the beginning. The first time I was like, okay, let me go and actually photograph these plants. Um, I wanted to basically do a series of bananas of the world. And I began to study the botanical literature and go out into these countries and find these plants. I tracked them down. You know, some of these research papers have like coordinates. Some, they have like very vague descriptions. Some of them are really old, going back to like the, the late 1800s or early 1900s. And you're just kind of like, just track these things down and uh, take a picture of them. So far, I, I think I've photographed probably around 30 something species. And I still, this project is still ongoing and it will translate into something on film that will be much crazier. I won't go too much into <laughs> that yet, but it's kind of out of this world. And it's going to be a very long-term project that's been working. I've been conceptualizing and working on for about five years, but actually got some groundwork done this past 2019. Now, you just referenced the book, Fate of the Fruit, The Change of the World. Has there been an extensive survey, let's say, of banana diversity? I've never really heard of it. I mean, I knew there were other species of bananas, but I know you're finding some things maybe that are, are relatively unknown. Some of these things are unknown, especially when it gets in more isolated parts of the world, like I did when I was in the Solomon Islands. But there are plenty of botanists out there like studying bananas. It's actually, it's a crop that that rakes in trillions of dollars. Right. Globally. It's a staple for many people all across the world. So like bananas are something that's highly sought after and highly looked after in terms of agriculture and agribiz because a spore can destroy billions and billions of dollars. Um, right. So they there there's always research done in this field. Now, in terms of the cultural and like human journey aspect of it, this is what I'm d diving more into. The reason I was photographing the wild species is because I just love botany. And like most of these things have never even been photographed. They're extremely rare. I've photographed some things that have probably never been photographed already. And I just wanted to get people's eyes to show them the diversity of this beautiful plant and this beautiful fruit. And this can be translated into most food plants, but mm. I'm just using this as a catalyst to just connect humans and their connection to like the plant world and food. And this is just the perfect way to do it, in my opinion. What a great way to inspire people to question you know, something like a banana that we all think we know so well. And it turns out we don't really know anything about the crazy diversity and the crazy way it's influenced the planet. What's an example maybe of how bananas affected a development of a, of a region or a people? Mm. Oh man, there's a lot. I figured there'd be a lot. So I was like, <laughs> before I ask him to list out every example, I should probably just read the book. Well, but if there's one, but if there's here, one powerful one or something you discovered. <laughs> I'll just go into American history. A bit. The banana was the actual, the kickoff to, during the Industrial Revolution, uh, the kickoff to the fruit industry as a whole. I mean, the reason we can go into a Whole Foods or a supermarket and see a fruit section is because of bananas. Uh, the reason that we have refrigerators in cargo ships is because of bananas. You know, the banana was actually brought to the Caribbean by a, I believe, a Portuguese uh, missionary to the, the island of Hispaniola, which is now the Dominican Republic. And mm. that was uh, where it first landed. And it ended up being a crop that was used for enslaved Africans and, you know, for the labor in the, the Caribbean, for the sugarcane plantation, because they're high, they're high in calories and they're very productive and easy to grow. And this was actually used to feed the population of, of enslaved people. 
It wasn't really looked at as a delicacy or a maize and fruit prior to that. It was used for that. And it wasn't until like Victorian era where women in Florida actually started eating bananas as a dessert and rich people in Florida. That's when it kind of caused a buzz. And there was this guy, I cannot quote his name right now, but he basically brought it to the East Coast of America, Northeast Coast, and it caused a buzz. And then he started to bring bananas up from Jamaica, where there was actually the production, main production of bananas were happening at the time. And he sold out and then basically uh, started this industry, which is now the banana industry, uh, you know, Fife's, you know, which in United Fruit Company, all these huge companies that basically started this industry in the early 1900s, turning industrial revolution, very old money. Yeah. When you reference United Fruit Company, my mind goes to kind of the dark underbelly of that history. And it sounds like that's been kind of there throughout the relationship of the Americas with bananas. Wow. What a fascinating ethnobotanical history bananas have that we don't even appreciate. I have to know then what's your favorite species of banana? Like for the man who's knows and is photographed unknown bananas, what is your favorite species or what's one that really stands out for you? My favorite species is probably a species called Musa lawentiensis. Musa being the genus of bananas, lawentiensis is the species. And I found this particular species in uh, Borneo um, in 2019. Mm. There was some photographs of this particular one, but they were very bad. And I'm sure there are maybe some botanical researchers out there that have a photograph or two, but I'm photographing it in a way that I'm, you know, I'm trying to make art as well. And right bring it in a different light, not necessarily like taxonomy pictures, like where you're laying fruit out and, you know, getting the diameter and circumference of the actual cut fruit and the size of the seed and all that stuff. I'm just, I want to show the beauty of the plant. That's the way I've been photographing these things. But that particular species is about the size of a string bean, like a long string bean when ripe. It's freaky. (laughs) That sounds like a baby banana. That's probably my favorite one that I've seen in the in the wild. Wow, that's really interesting. One that caught my imagination a few years ago. I think it's called the Java Blue, I want to say. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. And it's a banana that supposedly can fruit in my area of Northern California. That's on my list of, you know, once we get a little more time to be in the garden, I want to try to grow a banana. And I was crestfallen to realize, of course, they're tropical. They're not going to grow here. But that was the one species supposedly that might grow here. So that is a, a cultivar of, so the thing about bananas, there's three main, well, two main species that are used for cultivation, and they make hybrids of these as well. You have a Musa balbiciana, and then you have Musa acuminata. And those are what we use for, that's the species that we've selected into all these different cultivars. So all these crazy bananas that you see, most of them are of the same species, like humans, like we're so diverse, like, you know, there's so many kinds of humans, but we're all homo sapiens. <laughs> It's the same thing. Now I need to see this documentary about bananas. I'm going to read this book. I mean, I have, these are all books right here. Like these are all bananas. That's insane. This is the banana. This came out in 1924. It's basically the story of banana. This is uh, the conquest of tropic by Frederick Upham Adams. And this talks a little bit about the uh, colonial aspect of the banana industry. Um, wow. They're in plastic because they're really old. This book is probably from like ancient. Yeah. They're old. Yeah. And this is uh, Wild Bananas of Sarawak, a systematic study of the genus Musaceae. This is uh, what I used to track down uh, a lot of the species in Borneo. This is where Mus- Musalawantiensis is. And 
Right. And then you have uh, When the Banana Was King, the Jamaican Banana King in Jim Crow America. So I feel like this is the black story behind the banana industry because we know Fife's Dole. Well, Dole was kind of like an emergence that happened later on, but United Fruit Company. This is a, a man who basically was trying to do what they're doing, but he was a Jamaican man because they were coming from the Northeast of America down into Jamaica to to harvest bananas and bring them up. This is the story of a black man who was trying to, he was basically competing with the, the major right. industry. My instinct when I hear a story like that is like, oh, they probably killed him. Or like they probably did something I, I honestly horrible. honestly haven't even read it to that, that far yet, but right. he was big. He was like on their level, but his story is, I mean, this book I had to order from Jamaica. This story has, it hasn't been told. This is the only thing I could find on it. And some guy wrote it. So your documentary is going to like tell some of this, like the real secret history of it's going to, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm digging deep. Well, I'm, I'm just excited to see all the artwork that comes out of this. And of course I'm stoked for what I'm hoping is like a documentary that you release one day, but we'll keep it under wraps. We'll keep it secret, but I'm really excited to, to learn more about that. I guess what has traveling then so much taught to you or brought to your perspective? I'm always impressed by people who have traveled so many different places and especially someone who's there specifically like you are to observe and kind of capture the essence of a place. Well, I think traveling really just broadened my perspective in the sense of me being an American. I think it has changed the way that I see the world culturally and it's changed the way that I live and walk through the world, especially uh, experiencing the immense amount of poverty in the world. And I think it's my level of gratefulness for the simple things in life has increased, you know, just turning a light on and, you know, having running water and being able to flush the toilet and just have the simple things that most people don't even have on a daily basis. You know, when you, when you're without those things for months at a time, you, you realize, damn, we got it pretty damn good. You know, (laughs) (laughs) a potent reminder to have (laughs) so much gratitude for what we do have. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it just it just helps me to be able to step out of my own world, you know, to step into a new world. Because when you go to different countries, there are different languages and different perspectives and, you know, different cultural just ways of being, whether it's religion or ideologies or anything. Uh, it's just it's just really good to just be able to step out of your own and, and step into a new world and realize that nothing is like black and white. And just the thought processes across the world are diverse. That's that's what I get from it, at least. And I'm this firm believer in an ancient or supposedly an ancient consideration, if you will, was that people asked not where you come from, but where you've been, that actually one of the most valuable things is where you've traveled, because that is indicative of maybe who you've become as a person or what you've absorbed from the rest of the world, fleshing out your understanding like you're describing. So I, I was curious if it had that effect in it. Sounds like it definitely has. Well, then how did you transition then to this Growing Back to Nature series? Because bananas, kind of a work of a lifetime. So then how did you get into the Growing Back to Nature documentary series? Well, the docuseries I've been conceptualizing for, we're in 20, we're about to be 2021. Well, I started conceptualizing that back in 2016. It was just an idea. And I was like, "Hmm," you know, like, because I had this, I had a YouTube channel. I still have a YouTube channel, but there are old videos I posted when I was like gardening and yeah, I love those YouTube videos. <laughs> yeah, that was an interesting time. It was just my mom's basement and I was just like gardening and making videos and it was fun. You know, it was a good, good little era, you know. And, yeah, uh, for sure. I've grown so much since then, but you know, um, 
that was very vloggy. It was like very vlogs and YouTube based. And But my craft in terms of like how I love film and how I want to push just a little bit further, basically, I just wanted to come up with something to express the same ideals, but in a way that I'm telling other people's stories because I love storytelling. And it's all started with me trying to come up with a title. I knew it had to do something with going back to nature. I need to go back to nature. People need to go back to nature. I was like, grow back to nature, grow, <laughs> like <laughs> growing back to nature. And I was like, okay. And then Will, William Padilla Brown, who's a citizen scientist, mycologist, is actually a good friend of mine. And he's going to be the first episode and it just like kind of synced up. And I have a few other people that's going to be in the, the first season. Episode two is actually be um, this woman named Shia Sue. She's based out of Germany, also known as the Wasteland Rebel. And she's a zero waste advocate, practices zero waste lifestyle. And um, I'm going to tell her story as well, living in a city in Germany, but navigating a world that produces an immense amount of trash, but she's doing it in such a way where she's, she can put all her trash basically for the past half a decade, I believe, in a jar, which is really impressive to me because it's just simple things like when she traveled or, you know, like a ticket or something that she just couldn't avoid. A piece of duct tape that somebody stuck on her bag or something like that, you know, it's, I think it's just really impressive. So I, and there's a many other stories I want to tell. I guess I won't go too deep into the rest of the stories, but those are the first two episodes and I'm really excited to get them out there and hopefully I can uh, get to Germany through all this COVID-19 stuff and, and get episode two done. Right. Well, just those two episodes, I'm already hooked. I already want to learn more. And what's cool is I think this is really important to give people these inspirational models of like, here's what the future can be. Here's some, not templates, but some examples we can follow to really improve things because everyone wants to improve things. I think everyone's conscious of, you know, where is all this trash going? So what an amazing way to help address those problems by showing people who already are and telling their stories in a really compelling way. And I guess, how did you meet Will? I, I for some reason, I thought this documentary, that was kind of how you were introduced to him, but how did you get to know the infamous William Padilla Brown, the Cordyceps <laughs> King? I believe he had wrote me on YouTube one day, many years ago. That's when I had like very short hair. It might be like 2012 or 2013 or something. I don't even know. But um, it was about a reishi mushroom video I made. Yeah, he just wrote me about that. And I guess we just had a little uh, internet relationship, like talking back and forth. And I honestly don't even remember like the first time I hung out with him. We've just been like homies <laughs> since... <laughs> Like, I honestly can't remember the first encounter. Right, um, right. I feel like I'm known forever, to be honest. <laughs> well, that's what happens too sometimes. You know people online, you like watch their videos. Like, I, I've known this guy forever. We, yeah. we might have actually been conscious of each other, but like we've been in each other's lives. That's yeah, really yeah. cool. That's really, well, what a perfect person to start with too, because in so many ways, I think he is offering new models of how to be on this planet and how to achieve homeostasis. I'm sure you've learned a lot just from following him around and documenting it. Yeah. I mean, the dude is he's incredibly intelligent and very down to earth. And that's why his story is so important to me because I don't want these stories to feel unreachable. I don't want these mm -hmm. stories to feel, oh, I have to be this or I have to be that to, to you know, and, and, and I don't want it to feel off-putting. He's very humble. He's very down to earth and you can hang out with him. You can hang out with anybody and, and that, but he's also doing these incredible things and self-taught him. He, he taught himself these incredible things, you know, someone that is dropped out of school, you know, someone that has 
you had a child at a very young age and had, you know, being a young black male and having obstacles against him and he's just, you know, winning, which is yeah. amazing. And I, I think that's why his story is so impactful. A beautiful way to put it. And I think seeing people like that who push the boundaries of what's possible always inspire us then to do the same, you know, from people like him, different people online, people like yourself, whenever you see their work, you're kind of like, man, what am I doing? That's going to not, not to like copy that or whatever, but what am I doing? That's kind of achieving that level of pushing the boundary and, and bringing us more into alignment. That's a big thing I get from his work is a lot of like doing things that are in alignment. He's not, at least it seems like to me, he's not trying to be famous. He's not trying to make a lot of money. He's trying to have his thoughts, emotions, and actions, like what he knows to be right, what he understands about the world, how it makes him feel is all in alignment with what he's doing, like what he's putting his hands to. So that's a really great person to be able to showcase. And she is Sue. And then how many people total are you going to end up showcasing? Well, right now I have five episodes in mind for season one. And I would love to just share that right now, but I kind of don't want to just yet. <laughs> now you got to leave us wanting more. Yeah. Got to leave yeah. us wanting more. I know from doing this series, you've gotten some opportunities to be part of events. What was the event you did most recently with uh, the McKenna Academy? Well, I basically, the McKenna Academy had reached out to me and I was helping them with some interlude, video interludes, where I was able to uh, show the pre-trailer to the docuseries that I'm working on, Growing Back to Nature. Because uh, Will had given a joint talk with Paul Stamets, and I'm sure we all know who Paul Stamets is, this being a mushroom podcast. If you're listening to this show, you probably already know. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, uh, I was able to showcase some of my works and also launched a pre-trailer to the docuseries. Uh, not the official trailer, but the trailer to let you know, hey, I'm still working because I raised the money to get the camera gear to, to even start the production back up. So I wanted to just show people like, you know, I am using this to make this happen. I mean, you're entirely self-funded, it sounds like, for this project. Yeah, 100%. Besides the crowdfund that I did about five months ago, back in June, I raised about $25,000 and I was able to purchase my camera gear, uh, audio gear, a tripod, and also use my own money, the last money I had basically to build a computer so I can edit. And yeah, it's all funding myself. I put everything into this. Right now I'm actually at my mom's house and I'm blessed to just have a room here where I can just like focus on my work and get it done because I would not be able to pay rent and do this at the same time. We all need to thank Ms. Palmer for making a space so Anthony can do this really important work and put it out into the world. And that was one of my other questions is as the world changes, you know, what kind of shifts have you seen in video and photography media? And how has that changed your own practice? I would think you have a more of an in-depth understanding of, you know, videography gear and photography gear, whereas a lot of people now just have an iPhone. So has that shift affected your work? And I guess part of this, do you think we're losing anything by just using our phones for everything? Does that diminish the art at all in your mind? Mm. It's a good question. I don't know necessarily if it diminishes the art, but it might diminish the craft, the the process of making such a thing. You know, like me, I'm, I'm a nerd for these things. I, I love cameras. I love gear. I love film. I, I will read film scripts, uh, screenplays. I, you know, I'm really into it. So it's like, 
but I am seeing a change in the content. I'm starting to see a lot more people into gardening, a lot more people into foraging, a lot more people into self-care and health and green juices and just everything, you know? And I think that we're going to see a renaissance of wanting to reconnect with the natural world within the next decade, like a serious one, because we don't really have a choice and it's really up to us to change ourselves and and how we move on the planet. And that will definitely change the way that we produce content. So um, I'm definitely starting to see that as it has it changed me, not necessarily because if you look at my history of my work, I mean, I've just been doing the same thing. I've just been basically getting better is all, you know, so my work hasn't really changed, but I'm really glad to see that it's happening around the world and in like modern culture. Well, it seems like that art of storytelling really is more important than ever. You know, as gear changes, maybe simplifies, maybe the one thing that hasn't changed is you have to be able to tell a good story, no matter if it's a one minute Instagram video or a docuseries. Yeah, storytelling, I think, is actually the hardest the hardest part of it all. It's harder than filming. It's harder than taking a good photo. It's storytelling is to tell a story is to keep someone engaged right. and, and, and get a point across and get and really be able to bring you into another world. And I think that's that's where the magic is, like happens, you know. So you can have like the crappiest gear on earth, but if you're a good storyteller, you could probably make really good content. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think it's important too, to develop our skills at storytelling, also to change the narratives of how we tell stories about ourselves and our culture. I mean, do you see that? Do you see that storytelling and our ability to maybe tell our own stories rather than have people, you know, project a story for us, whether it's the news or a big institution like politics or whatever, I guess the question ends up being, are we taking back a little power on what our social and cultural narratives are now that everyone is having the ability to tell stories? Yeah, I I definitely think so. I mean, Instagram stories. (laughs) (laughs) Change the world more than anything. (laughs) Seriously, like I think the access to the world, like I mean, there's just one guy I follow. He, I'm sure he's like viral right now, but he's this one, two, three. He sings this song. It's like this Vietnamese dude. I don't really know his story, but I mean, this guy lives in a village in Vietnam. Yeah. And here you have his his clips being played by like pop stars all around the world. And it's just being passed around. And that just goes to show you how the outreach is so available to just anyone. And that gives the storytelling back to the people. You know, the power is back in the people's hands in terms of how we want to people to hear our narrative. It's not like anyone has control over this anymore. It's more uh, open source, if you would call it. I love that idea that the narrative is open source because so much of you know how we tell history, but even stories about modern day society, you always got to think about well, who's telling this story? And I feel like that's becoming we're all becoming more and more conscious of that kind of taking back that that narrative power. Yeah, for sure. Well, I guess then what is in the future for you? You know, what's most directly on the radar? I would imagine getting a plane ticket to Germany and navigating that whole nightmare. But is there any other work you want to talk about, you know, current future plans, anything like that? Well, currently I would like to go on an editing trip. Uh, it's about to get really cold here and I want to fly somewhere warm and where I can film and work on a pilot for another film that I'm working on mm. and also bring my editing gear and some friends who are my film crew with me. And that is 
the nearest day in the future of in spring, I want to basically head to Germany and pick up on episode two, get that done, and then come back to the States and begin to knock out all the rest of the episodes. I think we'll all be eagerly awaiting some of these projects to come out. This movie you hinted at, does that have a name or a topic you can reveal for us? Bananas. Of course, let's bring it full circle. Of course, it's going to be about bananas. Where can people then find your work? Where can people engage with you? And is there any other crowdfunding on the horizon? Because hearing this, you know, I want to like pour energy into your work. Do you have any other crowdfunding thing on the horizon or anything like that people can support you? Yeah, I, I did start another crowdfund. I didn't do much promoting on it, but if you just go to my website, growingbacktonature.com, or you can follow Growing Back to Nature on Instagram, or you can go to Rev of Thought, Rev of Thought, short for Revolution of Thought, which was my YouTube channel back in the day. That's my Instagram. And yeah, you can find my crowdfund on there. I just got a crowdfund. And if you want to support, you can. And that will just help me uh, keep the keep the wheels going on this, this ship. I guess ship doesn't have wheels. (laughs) (laughs) Keep the wheels going on this ship. Well, I encourage everyone to go and support your work. And as we're talking about some of these bigger themes, I just have to know, do you think, I mean, you said we're all going to inevitably have to like turn back towards nature and understanding of nature. It sounds then that you have kind of a positive outlook on the future. You know, I think we're facing these two paths where we can go kind of full technotronic and we all end up in gray sweatsuits with VR goggles on, hooked up to some like vitamin IV, like in that, uh, maybe that Ready Player One, or (laughs) we can kind of turn back to nature and develop this intimate appreciation and really in-depth understanding of nature as technology develops and we're able to see all these crazy symbiotic relations. But you sound like you have a pretty positive outlook on that whole thing. For sure, for sure. I see the problems ahead as an opportunity. It's almost like we had, as human beings, because we've become globalized and this meshing of cultures and language, I think we we had to kind of stray away from ourselves a bit to stray back to ourselves. But mm. now we're going back to ourselves more unified in a way now that we're a connected world. Because these problems aren't really just, oh, an American problem or a European problem or African problem, or this is a global issue we're dealing with. And um, I feel we have to get our together or deal with the consequences of that, you know, and I think getting our together could be real fun and innovative. Absolutely. There's a phrase I like from a writer I was introduced to recently, he calls it falling together. We're not mm. falling apart. We're kind of falling together. We're kind of, it seems like we're moving in different directions. It seems like, but it's all kind of falling into the right place. And I also think that, yeah, a lot of times through human history, we tend to over leverage things to a point and then naturally figure out, whoa, we're way out of balance. But it's like when you're maybe editing audio or editing a film, sometimes you turn knobs all the way to the max and then all the way to the minimum to see what does that do? And then we kind of figure out, okay, let's get back to the middle. Now, Now we know how that adjusts things. I really appreciate that positive outlook because I think we're all trying to in a world of like COVID and political unrest and just craziness, we're all trying to keep head on our shoulders. And I like that idea that we're kind of falling together. It's all for a reason, figuring out what we don't want. So we get more clear about what we do want. Maybe. Yeah. We just like hitting rock bottom. <laughs> hitting rock bottom. Sometimes you got to <laughs> hit rock bottom before you can start to get better. I'm realizing we never mentioned mushrooms. So just as a quick 
blurb about this. You know, how do mushrooms feature in your life? Are you much of like a wild mushroom forager? Do you take any medicinal mushrooms? How are fungi central in your life? Uh, in terms of medicinal mushrooms, yeah, I drink I drink reishi tea pretty often. And I mean, I just love mushrooms to eat them. I, my knowledge of mushroom isn't as diverse as someone like Will, because I'm more delved into the plant well, but I, I do forage for things like chicken in the woods or, you know, I find some chanterelles or never find a morale, but hopefully I can find one of those one day. And I have a basic knowledge of like, you know, maybe I can probably name like 20 species or so. And yeah, I mean, I had some chanterelles earlier. I just I sauteed them up and I threw them in my ramen that I made. They were wild chanterelles that I got at Costco. <laughs> I love that chanterelle ramen. <laughs> And that's really cool too, actually, to see wild mushrooms breaking through to all these different places. Like this is the time of the mushroom. And yeah, I think about 99% of us don't know as much about mushrooms as Will Padilla. So that's kind of a high bar you're setting for yourself. It sounds like you know a lot about mushrooms and you're pretty, they're pretty well integrated into your life. Well, then to go along with that, what's a mushroom you love and why, or a mushroom maybe that you're particularly interested in and why? I guess probably reishi. Reishi is probably my favorite because it's been used for so long. Ancient Chinese used right. this mushroom. You know, it's it's it was so highly revered in in like the the old dynasties of China that only the high court and the the, the emperors were, had access to this at times. You know, so I think the, something that's been used by humans for such a long period of time that's what I'm attracted to. Food that connects us back to our ancient selves because it's still here. We're still here. The ancient future is a concept I'm always obsessed with. And it seems like your work is very grounded in that. Sometimes you need to go all the way back to the ancient times and pull forward that wisdom that really hasn't changed. And now what has, I'm going to change this question a little bit. What has your relationship with botany and then expanding from there, the relationship with fungi, the relationship with the natural world, this understanding that you've developed throughout your life, you know, from the days of Venus flytraps all the way up till now, what has that brought to your life or how has that changed your life? Maybe in terms of perspective or how has that informed kind of who you are as a person today? I think just the way I navigate the world, uh, the way I think about simple things in life is always kind of aligned with like these ideals. And I think that's how it's changed me. It's, it's made me change the way I see everything. And I think that's kind of what we need is like a shift in how we think, call it consciousness, call it whatever you want, but we need to think differently. And uh, I think just being more aligned with these ideals, especially with the natural world, you know, we need to begin to, move different, you know, like if, if we begin to love the natural world and see it like a human being did a while back, uh, we will actually begin to respect it. You know, we wouldn't litter, we wouldn't kill things. Uh, we wouldn't, you know, do all these things that we do. I think it would just make us more compassionate to the natural way of being and natural way of moving and the natural world. I think when we become compassionate to the natural world, we become more compassionate to ourselves. Absolutely. And that's a big theme I'm picking up. And just your journey and your way of thinking is like, break out of my cultural box. I'm not going to be stuck in just looking at things through this narrow, quote unquote, American worldview. I'm going to see this bigger world and then going beyond that. Boom, I'm going to break out of this human box, this human consciousness and way of seeing everything like resource extraction or how can I use this or 
and maybe be more in tune with the consciousness of nature, whatever you want to call that, and the cycles and rhythms of nature and be more in tune and taking inspiration from that to inform our conscious experience. I think that is a huge shift and probably the only answer that's going to get us to the world that that we all want, you know, more so than economics or politics. Like we got to change our consciousness to be more informed by nature. So a powerful insight. Appreciate that. And then what is the impact that you hope to have with your work, you know, with telling stories and exploring the information that you do? What, what do you hope the impact of, of that all is? My impact is to, for one, the most important thing for me is to inspire the youth, to inspire the generation growing to have different options and how they move to the world. You don't really follow the steps that we've been following in terms of consumption and extraction and just kind of open their minds to that a little bit more. And for everyone else, I want to inspire them to to see that, hey, listen, there are other ways of being, you know? Um, And I think everyone from what I've been experiencing has a, a deep longing to to connect with the natural world or connect with natural thinking or natural systems or natural anything because we've strayed so far from it and it's written in our DNA to be part of this. So the further we get away from it, you kind of feel uneasy. You know, you don't feel like it's right. But when they see these concepts or hear about these concepts and these uh people, something clicks where they're like, that's what I want, you know? And yeah, I, I just I just want to open doors and minds to new perspectives, basically. That's my goal, inspire people. Well, I think you just probably did this for a lot of people, but I think you just tapped into my subconscious and elucidated it because I think that's exactly what I feel. Uh, So a magnificent impact to have on the planet. Well, Anthony, thank you so much for coming on Mushroom Hour, sharing your story and the stories you're telling about others. It really is super, super inspiring and I'm excited to follow your work. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, thank you, appreciate it. 